National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Every Wednesday at 9 a.m., we get together here on KYMN Radio to discuss national security. We bring in guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore challenges in national security. We have a great show for you today. Longtime listeners of National Security This Week will have noted that Russia regularly comes up in our discussions. We generally see Russia as a spoiler on the world stage, interfering with the liberal Western democracies' elections, economies, and national security efforts. This show will be a first of a number of shows I have planned for us throughout the rest of the year covering modern Russia. Our guest today is someone who can help us better understand Russian politics and especially the Russian economy. Todd Lefko is president of the International Business Development Company, an import-export firm dealing with water purification equipment, art, linens, kilns, and new technologies. He has worked in Russia for 33 years and has homes in both Moscow and Minnesota. Todd Lefko was a weekly columnist for Rysiski Vesti. Is that, how, is that the proper pronunciation? Okay, Vesti. The political newspaper of the Russian presidential administration. And he has written over 680 articles in, in, in Rysiski Vesti and, and other newspapers and magazines. Todd is on the editorial board for the Russian Historical Journal and has been the English editor for four Russian books. Todd also serves as chairperson of the Russian-American Business and Culture Council for Minnesota. He's taught over 4,400 students at the University of Minnesota and other Minnesota colleges and has lectured at universities in Russia, Germany, China, Belarus, Kazakhstan, and Turkmenistan. <laughs> Todd holds a Bachelor of Arts in History, a Master of Arts in Public Administration, and has completed the coursework for a doctorate in urban history from the University of Minnesota. Todd has also studied public policy as a Bush Fellow at Harvard University and urban planning at the University of Manchester, England. Todd Lefko is one of the founders of Global Volunteers and has served as their treasurer and representative at the United Nations. Finally, Todd has also been a member of the Twin Cities Metropolitan Council, the Regional Transit Board, and the Minnesota Experimental City Authority. Todd Lefko, welcome to National Security This Week. Thanks, John. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here. So you have a very impressive background, uh, but I want to start off a little bit with your career path, if we could. Uh, can you give us a thumbnail sketch of how you found such passion in getting to know Russia and why you chose to become so connected to Russia, obviously 33 years of business, especially since you clearly started uh, your study of Russia uh, back when it was still the Soviet Union? You know, it's funny. When you look back on your life, everything is logical, and it's almost like a tree with branches and roots, and, and there's a logic to when you look back. When you look forward, I joke with my friends that if we had known 30 or 40 years ago what, our, what the future was going to be, would we have died laughing or committed suicide <laughs> at that point? Because we, we never would have thought through the kind of patterns that happen. Most of my things happen by accident. Okay. And you know, and I can say that um, when I was when I was twenty, I was a I was what we affectionately termed a student leader at the university. At least that's what we termed ourselves. No one else did. <laughs> and um, and so I was chosen to be part of a group. I was the head of the National Student Association for Minnesota and Dakotas, and on the National Executive Committee for NSA. And so I was one of the people chosen to go to the Communist Youth Festival. And it turns out, supposedly it was for a wealthy older American, which as it turned out was Uncle Sam, who was a CIA front. <laughs> that was my first exposure to communism, okay. except for the fact of the fact that in Minnesota, if you're in northern Minnesota, 
half the people you meet were some were tied to a communist through the Finnish or some of the communities that were here. But we never thought of it that way. We thought of it as an exception to to a normal democratic process. Yeah. So that was my first exposure back in the '60s, early '60s, and then um, we I got into global volunteers, and we were. Um, I was sitting there one day with my friend who was the head of the the Twin City Youth Symphony, hmm. and my daughter played in Gitsies, and and we needed somebody for our board, and they needed somebody for theirs. So at lunch, I said, "You go on our board, and we'll go on. I'll go on yours." So then I ended up that every other year, Gitsi send its, sends its youth symphony somewhere in the world. And we were the first youth symphony to play in the Soviet Union. All right. And so I was the chaperone for 100 kids. <laughs> and so and my own marriage was falling apart at that point. So I started a relationship with our guide in Russia. And so I can truly say that women probably produced you know, the direction of my life as much as any sense that I was going to be in Russia. Okay. And so I went back to see her, and my own marriage had ended. And so, um, I, and at those days, one of the lessons you learn when you're doing international things is that sometimes it's the blue of your passport rather than the blue of your eyes, which is really attractive <laughs> to others. And and that was a difficult concept for a young, fine gentleman from Minnesota to understand. And there used to be a song in Russia many years ago, but I love, I love, I love, I love my American boy. <laughs> and there was the desire to get to the United States, which I assumed was just part of a normal process, but it was truly a goal. And so I got the person to Minnesota with the daughter, the dog, the chandelier. Um, and fortunately, thank God, that didn't work out because it was somebody that... that we called Ujazna, um, what her name is, which means terrible. And um, when she got here, she decided that that there were a lot of other options besides me, including any other male. And so I was never going to go back to Russia. It was a horrible experience. But she introduced me to my friend, and he called me up one day. I was never planning to go back. Okay. He called me up from Russia and said, Todd, um, I'm coming to the United States tomorrow. Can you take care? Can I stay with you? Click on my answering machine. Next day, I get a call, John, and says, Todd, I'm at JFK Airport in New York. Can you pick me up? And I said, you know, um, I said, it's rush hour. It's going to be difficult to get here by, you know, by through rush hour. So I said, you know, have any money? Yes, we've got $100. I said, there's a thing called Northwest Orient Airlines. Go to the desk, buy a one-way ticket, and we'll take care of you. So he came and stayed for six weeks. And he said, we've got a group of young economists because the Soviet Union was breaking up, and all these people wanted to go into business. Yeah. And so he went back, and he, after six weeks, um, I arranged to go back. We had the franchise to start Bridgman's Ice Cream right. in Hungary. Right. And which I signed the contract for national television with a large Bridgman's you know, menu saying soon there will be American hamburgers in Budapest. <laughs> and, but we had no money. It was pure nerve, but we couldn't get milk because we needed milk for ice cream because, right. because shipping ice creams awfully expensive. Oh yeah. So, but we couldn't get it. So we went back to Moscow then and I meet the young economists and, and the way Russia, the old traditional system in Russia was you'd sit there and the first day everyone stares at you about who are you? Yeah, they don't Why are you, you here? <laughs> what are you doing? And the second day, somebody says, can you do this? 
And it's something you don't even know. But, but if you're an American, you say yes to everything because we really believe that we can do it. Mm-hmm. Americans are optimists. We are. And we're problem solvers by nature. Yeah. In fact, um, an American, a Russian will tell you why something can't be done. An, America, an American will tell you how to do it, whether we're asked or not. <laughs> and so we get to this process where the third day we get into jokes when you're in and you've gotten to the point with Russians where you're telling Yeshutka, I have an anecdote or I have a joke, you basically have won the you know you won the structure because they trust you. Yeah. So we start the conversation, and at that point it was a question about about um, we have a young designer, and so they said we'll do a fashion show for you. So I said okay. So I walk in and. And they had taken part of an old factory because a lot of the factories had broken down at that point. Sure. And I see the most beautiful woman I've ever seen in my life. And I'm just I'm just standing there with my mouth open. And that was the woman I saw for the next two years. And this the there was a slight problem. Her husband was a KGB colonel, <laughs> which presented some difficulty. And um and she had left her husband and then a man basically tried to kidnap her, beat her, and close to death, and she had brain damage. And after that, it was always the question, how much money can you give me? And and that um, the last time I saw her was um, she had had two men sent after me. They picked me up above a street, which would be equivalent to Lake Street in Minneapolis, and carried me, held me down, and demanded $6,000. And at that point, I had no money. And after two hours, they decided that that rather than kill me, um, they they had me call one of my friends who was one of the young entrepreneurs who had six thousand, and he said, "Listen, let left go go, and we'll discuss this." So we um, they let me go. I went to a kiosk, bought three bottles of whiskey. Misha, my friend, brought three bottles of whiskey. And we became incredibly drunk at that point. <laughs> and uh, the next day they called up and decided that, that no, Mr. Lefkoe's decided not going to do business with you. But fortunately, through the process, I met the person who was my partner, who had just hired a young lady, who's a full professor of mathematics, one of the top mathematicians at, at Moscow State, which is the Harvard of Russia. Mm-hmm. And one day I asked her out to lunch, and we sat and talked for three hours, the next day for four hours. And after 10 days, I said, let's get married. And we did. We got, I flew her to the United States. Um, we got married in the Landmark Center in St. Paul. Um, and we had one day as a honeymoon, and then our first group, because we had sent sheets out across across Russia saying, would you like training in the United States? And 26 people sent money in. And that was the beginning of doing 763 program people wow. in educational programs and training programs in the United States, Europe, Canada, all of Europe, uh, Kenya, New Zealand, Hong Kong, Australia. We went all over the world wherever the executives wanted to go. And I gave lectures, and Irina translated. And Irina is my wife, and she's been we've been married 28, 29, 29 years ago. The luckiest thing that ever happened. So then we started doing. Um, the training went for about seven years. Then we started doing um, uh, porcelain. Yep. And then we started doing water equipment. Then we started doing kilns. Okay. And then one of my friends asked me to write because I'd written for uh, Delavoy Mir, the business world. And I was one of the first Americans to do regular journalism there. And we tried to be the Wall Street Journal, but Commerce Aunt beat us out. 
So then, um, then for 18 years, I was the weekly columnist for the presidential paper, which is Rosowski Veste for Putin and for. And, and I want to ask you a question about yeah, that. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, uh, so you were a weekly column. So yes, sir. Uh, let me just say, I, I knew you were going to be a colorful guest when I invited you on, <laughs> and you are you are not disappointing. <laughs> you are not disappointing. Uh, so you were the weekly columnist, uh, but what? but not a weekly communist though. That's uh, right. Like, there's yes. like make sure you, so there's yes. like let's clarify it. Uh, so that newspaper, it's sort of a state uh, state yes. paper. Okay. We were we were, but we were stopped last year by one of the ministers who became angry. When Dima Yarmolayev, um, our editor, wrote a, uh, an editorial he didn't like. Okay. So all of a sudden, one week, I said, um, I'm writing on this. I said, uh, we have a slight problem. We're shut down. Okay. And so and that's the way things happen in Russia. It just, it just happens. So before that happened, how, how did you view your role as a, as a columnist, uh, you know, being an American writing for a Russian state? Uh, There's okay. two factors here. One yeah. is the idea that, number one, you always tell the truth. Yep. Number two, because quite frankly, it's my integrity and my, you know, and my relationship. Yep. Secondly is the question that I only had one limit. I had only one basic limitation. I could not write anything bad about Putin. Okay. <laughs> you know, and, and this is very serious. Yeah. Is that what you're doing? Is when you write something, you write it in, in a in an oblique manner. You talk about the idea that many world leaders believe, yeah. or that or that as many as many major leading figures um, are implying now. You'd put it, and so the the implication could be made. There was a day that I wrote an art- article, and I th- I reread the article um, because it's translated into Russian once it's there. And I said, uh, I called up, I said, what time is the paper coming out? And he said, 6 o'clock. I said, if, if you don't change the last line at 6.10, you'll be dead. <laughs> and they changed the last line. And so what happens was, was that after a while, you learn how to write yeah. in a certain manner. And, and the thing is, is that um, but part of this, one of the difficulties of reading, and you know this, John, as an author, that one of the difficulties is you're never certain who your readers are. Right. You know, you know the type of people that would read your articles. And Rosiski of Este went, it was a great thing. We were a small newspaper, maybe 10,000 or less, but we went to every public official and every business official in Russia, which was a good group in Russia. Right. And so I'd, I'd walk in, drop a copy on a desk if we're doing business, and say, have you read my article? And everyone would say yes. Because they were too ashamed to say no. <laughs> and it was a great business tool. And plus it allows you to express yourself. Um, because sometimes when you're a writer, um, you feel you have something to say. You hope so. Yeah. And if you don't, then you should get out of the business. That's true. That's true. Uh, so for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Todd Lefko, a Minnesota-based business leader with a deep understanding of the Russian people and economy. Uh, so, Todd, uh, we just started discussing briefly uh, sort of the political leadership in Russia. Yes. Putin, you can't really write anything about Putin that's negative. Uh, can you give us your perspective on, on Russia's uh, political leadership? I mean, what what is happening in Russia right now? And, and I think you just articulated it pretty well. It seems like all forms of political opposition are being systematically eliminated by uh, Vladimir Putin. Am, am I wrong in that assessment? No, you're absolutely right. And it's been that process. There, there's two levels that are here. One is the historical tradition. Yeah. You've always had a small group of people. I tell people that, that in the historical tradition of Russia, 
people have changed costumes. They've changed uniforms, but it's always been a small group. The Communist Party was never more than 7%, 7% of the population. Yeah. So you went from having the, you know, the, the headman, which was the headman of the village who could determine taxes, or the idea of which children went in the military, to the idea of, of the nobility, to the idea of the Communist Party, to the idea of the oligarchs. Mm-hmm. You've always had this small sense, and a sense that democracy, except for a short period... You know, in the 20s, when there was the possibility and the period, you had a a process from 22 to 24 in terms of the national economic period, when there was a chance for capitalism breakout. A hundred years ago. Yeah. But, (laughs) but, and then in the, in 19, the 1990s, there was a possibility also. Okay. But it was mishandled and people never understood what democracy was. People thought democracy was the idea of having an election. Yeah. They didn't understand it was the idea of having alternative candidates, having a court system, having a rule of law. Mm-hmm. And so first was this idea of the tradition, which people never understood what capitalism or democracy really meant. Right. Secondly was the fact that as soon as Putin got in, there's a sense of bureaucracy where you seek to centralize control. Yeah. Because power tends to maintain itself. Right. You know, that's the function of power. Not the idea of what power can do, but the idea of centralization and maintenance of power. So they call what was called the vertical of power, where appointment of governors and mayors, the idea of making sure that your friends took over practically every liberal media. Mm -hmm. You controlled information. These people understood information policy before anybody in Silicon Valley did. Right. You know, and so what happens was, was that when you start to see alternatives, for years what they did was they allowed the appearance of alternatives. You'd have Yavlinsky and Yablako, which was the Apple, which was the liberal party, except for the fact that Yavlinsky could never make agreements with other Russians unless they worked under him. Mm. So you could never form a liberal bloc. And there was always a distrust. People blamed the collapse in 98 on the liberals mm. because there were all these liberals working with Yeltsin and stuff. And so, and we never really recovered. Plus, the, our attitude was to keep Russia down. Right. Yeah. You know, and the Russians remember that, that, it was, uh, that we were going to be the oil and gas entrepot, mm. basically for Russia and nothing else, but not really an equal partner. And so... Putin did everything he could to make sure that every aspect of the economy, I mean, there is, people ask me, is there capitalism there? And I say, yes. But Putin's friends become the head of Rosneft or Gazprom or all all major institutes. So they ask, do you have a private system? Yes, but the government appoints your board of directors in most (laughs) cases if you're a large firm. There are small private entrepreneurs, many of our business partners, are small entrepreneurs, but basically they have to go and buy the rules, and there's so much corruption there. So the answer is is that, yes, you've centralized practically every function. Yes, you've centralized political control. Yes, you have a chance. And for years, they allowed the outside people to run for office, unless they were too dangerous, to ensure the appearance of democracy without the reality. So a facade. Yeah. Oh, it's... Um, a Potemkin village. <laughs> yeah. In fact, listen, um, what happens is is that nobody understood that, you know, you've got one-eighth of the landmass of the world there. Right. And it's hard to know that a Potemkin village goes that di- goes to that distance. <laughs> you know? 
So with that said, uh, Todd, about about Russian politics, uh, and since politics is often driven by economics, uh, American politicians are invariably worried about the next fiscal quarter. We don't really think about the next quarter century, right? Let's get into a a deeper discussion on the Russian economy itself. Uh, you, you may be uniquely qualified to comment on it since you've been doing business there for 33 years. In, in all your travels uh, to Russia and your visits to Russia's neighbors, neighboring states, what can you tell us about the Russian economy? Well, you know, it's funny. Um, you've got uh, you've got oil and gas, which is the center of everything, probably providing 60% of the exports. You've got 30% of the GDP by oil and gas. You get most of the policy based upon the idea of oil and gas being being central to the functioning, you know, roughly close to half, and sometimes more of the Russian budget is based upon uh, upon the, the price of oil. Mm-hmm. When you're sitting there, and when when oil drops at, at a certain point, you had an oil, you had a Russian budget based upon sixty dollars a barrel, and then it drops to forty, and then it drops to twenty. And then it drops the fact where they're, they're looking at giving oil away. Uh, that one day, I remember that. <laughs> oh, listen, there was a, right now it's at uh, 7507 is yeah. Brent this morning. Yeah. And, um, you know, and what happens is, is that they're making money again. There's two factors here. One is the idea of the price of oil, um, which as it goes up above that, the pigs at the trough are extremely happy. Right. Because there's money in the budget. Secondly is the fact that you have built a structure where there's little, very little foreign debt. Roughly 7% of, of international debt in Russia is held by the United States. And so they're not, and they've been selling a lot of their dollars. They, they don't have to build a dependency upon foreign investors, even though they need foreign investors in certain segments, such as the idea of infrastructure, oil and gas, and technology. Okay. So most of the sanctions have not hit them that badly. Yeah. In fact, many of the Russians are thrilled about the sanctions, because it forces the Russian companies to develop, you know. But you walk into a Russian gastronome, the the Cub Foods, and there's there's potato chips and there's Coke and Pepsi and everything else. And I, and I said to one of my friends, I said, "What's happening?" He said, "No." He said, "All the stuff's produced here." Huh. He said, "They're American companies, but they're produced here." Okay. You know, McDonald's of Canada has their own farms, their own grain fields, their own cows, everything else. And so the sanctions haven't hit them. Where access to international capital has been limited by sanctions, just as new technology for for investment in Siberia, because oil and gas comes either out of the Urals, which is the heavy sour, or a light liquid from, you know, from Western Siberia. Mm-hmm. And so oil and gas become central. Secondly is the idea that you've had Russian technology for years. That my first job in Russia was I was the person hired by the Academy of Science to sell Russian inventions in the West. That was 32 years ago. Yeah. I, I did nothing. I couldn't help anybody because you'd be sitting there in discussions. I'd say, do you have a patent? Yeah. Like, oh, Koneshna, yes, of course we have a patent. <laughs> then there'd be a pause and the person would say, what's a patent? Right. <laughs> you know, and, um, and you could, once something became a value, a person working in a lab at a university didn't have any control because nobody figured it, was ma- it mattered. Yeah. Plus, you were, you know, the, they could do theoretical things, but applied science was really not a high level of, you know, of interest. Yeah. And so we'd be sitting there. The technological capability was great, but the idea of applied science was difficult. So they'd bring in things from the West, and they became dependent 
upon a number of those things. And, and they're not invested in the science and technology, even though they've tried with Skolkova and the places in Moscow, John. So there's a, there's a real fear. Um, you've got one quarter of the kids, 18 or 24, that want to leave the country. They're the brightest young minds. Most of them won't because of the reality of, of the rest of the economy and yeah. fitting in other nominations. But it shows something. You've had millions of people that are some of the brightest minds leave. Right. And so Putin's attitude is go. Yeah. You know, get rid of them. Because they'll just be dissidents yeah. in the system. <laughs> yeah. It's much easier just to, to go, go to Europe. Go yeah. to the United States. Yeah. And so the economy has the capability. There was a projection that the the World Bank projected there'd be a 3.2% increase in GDP this year, 32 next year, and, and uh, 3.1% the year after. That's not going to happen because it was the assumption of a, of a control of COVID. Oh. Russia is now running one of the highest rates at this moment, not only in the world, but in Russia, of COVID deaths and, and affections because over half the people don't trust the government and don't trust information, and they're not sure Sputnik works. For you, for that, the, That's their vaccine. Oh, their vaccine, Sputnik V. Yeah. So they were using it, and they're in this great irony at the moment where it became vaccine diplomacy. Right. They sold it to places like like for 80 million bucks to Guatemala, but then they 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 forgot that they were supposed to deliver it also. <laughs> and so the Guatemalans are asking for the money back. Right. But they're saying, we'll have a plane coming next week, you know, with a little portion of it. And there's a question. Most of the people, they're up to 16% vaccinated at the moment with at least one shot of, of Sputnik. Yeah. But you're going in where the most of the restaurants have shut down. They had QR codes that were put on the on the cell phones mm -hmm. that were supposed to show whether you were vaccinated or not. Well, now they've shut down a bunch of the restaurants, and they haven't shut them down. You can, you have to show that you've got a recent vaccination, and you've got to show that you're fully vaccinated and things. And and they've also our partners are going nuts. You have to show. There's been a push down. Putin announced that, that the governors were responsible for all vaccines. The governors have announced that the mayors and the people who are business owners are responsible for taking care of So everybody's, and, everybody's punting yes, responsibility. Yes, it's, a, it's the pure <laughs> Russian style of not taking responsibility but claiming credit. Okay. And so you've got a process now where, where like with our business partners, 60% of all your employees have to be vaccinated. But they can't get. Well, you got over half the people that don't refuse to it. Yeah. To do it. So our 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 partners are trying to figure out how do you do this. Right. Where you can't get the people refuse to take vaccines. And the other factor that's here is that a number of a number of doses were shipped abroad as part of the diplomacy. So in some places now their demand is going up, but they don't have access to some of the vaccines. Mm. So you've got this push pull relationship going right. on right now. Right. Uh, so you mentioned uh, oil and gas uh, yeah. being so heavily uh, a part of the Russian economy uh, as an export, um, and you've you've studied Russia, you've studied the Russian economy, you've been involved in the Russian economy. How does that dependence on oil and natural gas impact Russian political decisions uh, linked to their own economic development and their foreign policy? And, and Maybe talk a little bit about Nord Stream 1 yeah. and 2, uh, and maybe the fight over OPEC production, sure. which is going yeah, on right, right now, now. which is happening this week. Yeah. There's three factors, at least, that are here, John. Okay. 
Number one, you get a, a kind of a form of a Dutch tulip disease where you become so focused on a segment of the economy that you, you don't expand on the other alternatives that are there. So in terms of power and investment, and, and part of this is tied to the idea that, that this much of the oil in Siberia is built upon permafrost. Mm-hmm. That's a problem. <laughs> you know, and it's out there where you're sitting there uh, in terms of roads, railroads, access points. Uh, some of it's distance. Some of it's the idea of, of this is difficult. You know, and, uh, you know, you've got 8% of the land in Russia, which is arable. Mm-hmm. Which, so things like climate change, you'll have other areas which will become desertified, become d- deserts. And other areas will be open for years, but you may not be able to grow the crops that you need. And the permafrost areas are going to melt. Right. So your oil and gas access points, plus the idea of oil tanks are starting to collapse, and you have you know millions of, of gallons that are being spilled out, you know, into the into the rivers and stuff. So the first access is the lack of investment in a broader sense. Secondly, is the idea that oil and gas becomes your process of building dependencies. Mm-hmm. And so Nord Stream 2 is more a process of political relationship to avoid depend- any possible dependency upon American LNG and nickel natural gas. Yeah. And so, so they're if, trying to get the Germans to not yeah. buy into American. Well, you got two LNG. relationships. One is the idea that you had dependency in Europe. You know, in terms of, in some cases, some countries half or more of the energy supplies were coming in from Russia. Yeah, through so, through Ukraine, right? Through Ukraine, and so some of this was to make sure that we're going to teach the Ukrainians a lesson. Right. So they bypassed that, them. That by God, <laughs> um, if you can't be Russian, you're not going to be anything. Yeah. And and the fra- the old phrase used to be. Our little Ukrainian brothers, mm-hmm. they don't use that phrase anymore. And especially Ukraine, you don't use it unless you're in the far east, yeah. um, in Donetsk or, you know, in the area like that. And so so in Germany, you've built special relationships. You've hired coal and you've hired a bunch of the other people that were former German officials. To lobby on to, your behalf. Yeah, to lobby on your behalf and to be involved with Nord Stream. Yeah. So some of this becomes a question of, of of economic relationship with German officials. Some of it becomes the fact that Germany sits next to Russia. Yeah, that's true. You know, and it's hard to say up yours, you know, if you're sitting there and, you know, you've always had this tension because Germany still has these moments of questioning whether we're, whether the East and the West have truly come together. Right. You know, um, and, and so the first fact, the, the next factor here becomes the idea of, of, you build because you're increasing dependence, and the there's a Finlandization of energy, where what you do is you want to have you want to freeze questions, you want to make sure the Ukraine doesn't join NATO. Right. You want to make sure that Finland doesn't act again or join the West. You want to make sure that Georgia doesn't join the West. You want to make sure they they don't do anything. They may not become part of you. Yeah. I mean, for the Russians, the dream is to keep Donetsk frozen. Right. And I said to my Russian friends, take Donetsk. (laughs) Take it. But pay for the pensions and the rehabilitation of all the land and buildings. They, no, 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 we don't want to do that. Right. You know, um, you know, but we don't want it. We don't want it to go with anyone else. They don't want it to go west. 
And so for so, them... So the, this is that spoiler uh, idea that we talked yeah, about. Yeah, it's the idea that, that you want to make sure that nobody else can take advantage. Russians are good at understanding vacuums. Right. <laughs> Syria was a vacuum. Yep. Libya was a vacuum. Uh, Russian troops in, um, with Prigozhin, who's Putin's chef, in Africa, in Central Africa, are, are the idea of they're seeing a sense of a vacuum there. Yeah. So they're sending troops in. Um, and, and so the Russians, the Russians understand where you can take advantage of somebody else. So uh, there's a little anecdote that I remember learning when I was a, a young intel officer in the Navy, about, yeah. and it was about Russia, right? Uh, and and the, it was the story of, you know, one farmer has two cows, one farmer has no cows, right? And so the farmer that has no cows, rather than buying a cow from the farmer with two cows, <coughs> will kill the two cows that the farmer has, so they both have none. <laughs> I know, I know. There's a um, See, now the Russians would think that was incredibly funny. Uh, well, yeah. You know, um, <laughs> not the farmer. And in fact, listen, when the, when they went away from collective farming, yeah. a bunch of the others and the private farmers would have their land and their buildings attacked by some of the people on the collective farms. Sure. Because it was this idea about nobody wanted to see an advantage right. by others. And they couldn't, this concept of uh, zero-sum mentality you know, that everybody, somebody has to lose for somebody else to win. And I kept saying, well, what happens if you both win? Right. <laughs> what happens if you plant more apple trees? Yeah. And they'd look at me and they'd say, well, but still he might have more. <laughs> you know. uh, so for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Todd Lefko, a Minnesota-based business leader who has a deep understanding of the Russian people and economy. Uh, so, Todd, let's, I, I have a couple of other topics that I want to talk sure. about, and then we're going to run out of time here. But we know Russia has extraordinary natural resources. Yes. Uh, but it, and, and we were just talking about it. But in places that are very difficult to reach, yeah. Siberia, the Russian exclusive uh, economic zone in the Arctic Ocean, for instance, yeah. and perhaps a few other places. Uh, what, what are the Russians doing? What are the Russians doing to get access to these natural resources today? As the climate is changing, uh, you know, you talked about uh, the permafrost is starting to melt. Uh, they've been putting a lot of money investing into this, uh, into the high north. Uh, they've this- always done that. Murmansk is probably the largest. There's 4 million people in the Arctic Circle, and roughly 300,000 are, are in Murmansk, okay. which is the largest city in the Arctic Circle. Um, you've always had investment there you know, for a long time, basically as a matter of national security. Right. Because, in effect, the Arctic Ocean became a northern barrier yep. and a protective barrier. Secondly was the idea you've got huge investments now in the Yamal Peninsula, which is the, the Kola Peninsula, excuse me, which is basically the center of the submarines and a bunch of the other military bases that are, that are growing. Right. Third is the idea you're putting more money. They're having a great expansion of the Russian icebreaker fleet. Right. Huge. Fourth is the idea that they're they're trying to have more control over the idea of the northern route, right. which cuts up to a potential of up to thirty percent if you've got the icebreakers and if the the ice breaks at the right time and and basically there's a good chance that the sea is this God bless is going to be op- totally open for the rest of the year, which totally changes the the routes. But you've got a potential of saving thirty percent on your on your routes between Europe and Asia, right. Next is the idea that you're having a, a a movement by through the United Nations and through the Arctic um, the Arctic Council 
on the idea of the Russians are claiming they put new, two new claims in yeah. to that that they would basically control practically all the Lomonosov Plateau, right? Which basically controls the uh, it's Canadian and Danish land at the moment, and so the Russians would basically claim they mo- they own most of the Arctic. Yeah, um, <clears throat> this will be rejected just as the last uh, requests in. Um, in the early 2000s were, were rejected. And that's claims for the U.N. Convention on the Law of the Sea? Law of the Seas, yes. Okay. And so if you can show, uh, first you put your projections in and you put your claims in, and if you, a resolution cannot be found, then there's, uh, res- then there's uh, discussions and negotiations between the countries at, you know, at peril. Because of the way, um, because of the way the Lomonosov Plateau is is settled, and because of because of earlier claims by both Canada and Denmark, I have great doubts that they'll be able to to come to resolution. Yeah, you know, on that. So they'll claim it because you've got Russia right now controls thirty percent of the world's resources. Mm-hmm. The Arctic has the potential, and I say the potential because number one, deep drilling has not been perfected in the way, plus in the harsh atmospheres there, that this becomes a really secondary or tertiary place compared to all the places that are cheaper to get oil. Totally apart from the question of the timing and whether the fossil fuel era... Is coming to an end. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the the, the Russians are playing a double game here. Right. They're trying to make sure, just as the Saudis are, though the Saudis are doing much better in investing in alternatives. That's true. The Saudis basically have decided to buy, buy farms in West Africa and uh, in, in East Africa and other places that are investing in, 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 in um, investments, investment methods yeah. that there is an alternative. The Russians are trying to make sure they make as much money as possible. There's great discussion in Russia about alternatives without much action or investment. Yeah, well. Uh, so what about R- Russia's uh, southern neighbors? Let's talk a little bit about them. How does Russia engage economically with, say, Kazakhstan, Georgia, Azerbaijan, and others? There's two levels here, as there is in almost everything. <laughs> One is the idea of the Russian desire, because practically everything for years was centered on on access to the markets there, whether it was fruit and vegetables from you know Uzbekistan or the idea of cotton from the south. And all of it ran through Moscow. Okay. And as long as Moscow was the center, it was a brilliant scheme. You had pharmaceuticals from Hungary and, and you know, and vegetables from Eastern Europe. It was brilliant. Unfortunately, <laughs> in 91 and 92, the Soviet Union breaks down, and so all these other people de- develop different supply chains. Yeah. So, number one, you've had economic relationships which continue. A good share of the Russian managers are kicked out. You basically have national Kazakhs or Uzbeks move into a lot of those executive positions. Russian is stopped as a as the language that everybody has to learn, where the national languages take over from you know from that are indigenous. Yep. So you've got that aspect where they're trying to still build relationships, and they still see that as part of their area, their their Monroe Doctrine area sure. of control. <laughs> Secondly, is the idea that the growth of China 
is going to become the major factor because a lot of these have uh, have investments from China. Right. Or And I've told my Russian friends that they're going to wake up someday and understand that these are now Chinese suburbs. Right. <laughs> you know, and the Russians don't understand that yet. I, and I, and I, I want to ask this as, as sort of our last question, and then I'll, I'll give you the floor after, this, after we get through this one. But I absolutely wanted to ask you about uh, your perspective on China through the, the Russian eyes. Uh, what is Russia doing to engage economically with the People's Republic of China? And I ask this because uh, we know the Chinese are pursuing this Belt yeah. and Road Initiative sure. and these investments that you were just talking about through through these uh, Asian countries. Uh, does Russia benefit from that effort by China, this investment in the Belt and Road Initiative, or is, or is Russia ultimately hurt by the Belt and Road? It's ultimately hurt. And how so? Because, quite frankly, A, because because a bunch of the markets that are potentially Russian are taken over, were traditionally Russian, are taken over by China. Okay. Secondly is the idea that, that China, they have a perception, China, Russia sees themselves as an equal partner, which for years, because of military and military access and the idea of oil was, was legitimate. Yeah. Chinese have always seen the Russians as, what I, the way I describe it, a one-trick pony, and the one trick was oil and gas. Yeah. And they will buy the they will buy the planes and buy the military technology and copy them. Right, and reverse engineer it and, and make reverse it even engineer. <laughs> and then what happens? And then stop buying from Russia. Right. Secondly, is the idea that you've got Russia is seen Siberia is seen as a potential area for for Chinese expansion. Yeah. You've got seven million Chinese and a hundred and some million. You've got seven million Russians and a hundred some million Chinese out sitting on the on the twenty five hundred mile border. Right. There's the joke going that is almost like Boeing and Seattle that when the last Russian leaves Siberia will they turn off the lights <laughs> you know and so you've got you've got the fact that the the Russians look down the, the Russians are going to wake up someday and realize they've they've sold a lot of oil to they do joint military exercises with China yeah. they they stress this idea of brotherhood because it's a three-way relationship now which is being developed between Russia United States and China yeah but Russia is going to be the loser in this. It's going to be the, the small player. Right. And what happens is the Chinese understand that. The Russians don't. So the Chinese are kind of using the Russians to stock the United States. Um, they're using whatever is available. Okay. And Russia, Russia is one factor. But the attempts at road and bridge, some of which are less successful than others, because they they want the others to repay it. Right. And plus, they're moving they move a thousand Chinese in. They build something and they all leave. Right. And it doesn't do much for the local economy. Yeah. The, there's a it's a, the road and bridge is not working out the way as well as they thought. No. You know, expensive. Yeah. So at this moment, it's going to be really tough, John. I think um, the Russians. <clears throat> unless they understand the role of social capital and human infrastructure and do investments in that, and they're investing roughly 3% of their GDP in, in, in social infrastructure, uh, the net, net infrastructure, which is higher, frankly. Uh, Europe's only doing like 2.3% from a larger base. Yeah. And so unless they understand this, um, they're going to be in deep trouble. Yeah. And I tell that to my Russian friends, and they – and. Privately, late at night, when you're having the real discussions, they will admit it and understand it. Yeah. But during the day, no statistic in Russia is accurate. Okay. <laughs> you know, and so when you see something about the growth rate at this level, um, don't just take it with a grain of salt. Yeah. 
take the salt shaker. <laughs> okay, fair enough. So, Todd, I'll, I'll give you uh, I'll give you the floor for two minutes. Two okay. minutes. What else should our listeners know about Russia today? Uh, Number one, the opportunities are still there. People are doing business. We're doing business there, and and and. Not just the idea of resources, but especially the uh, the concept of new American technology is still a potential there as long as it's not tied to oil and gas. Secondly, Russia poses a threat because we've shifted to a concept of asymmetrical relationships. Right. It's not the question. Power is not based upon the number of midshipmen or the number of, of ships or planes any longer. It's based upon the idea of control of information yeah. and cyber warfare. And quite frankly, the Russians are brilliant at this. They have contests with kids. They give them starter kits on on, uh, hacking. I mean, it's good that every kid has has a talent. But basically the idea that you're watching the things that are happening this week, not just with continental oil, but with the idea of this week, with the break-ins, which are Russian technology, which are always plausible deniability. Right, covert action. Yeah, the Russians (laughs) announce that they don't. I mean, Putin's chef is the guy who does Internet Research Agency, Progosian. <laughs> and what they do is it's Russian money yeah. that's paying for all this, but it's done through a private company. So the government says, we know nothing about this. So the second aspect is the danger is still there. Third is the idea, the Russians are among the most wonderful people in the world. They're funny. They're, without doubt, the funniest people in the world. Yeah. You sit that night, and one of the tasks is telling jokes or anecdotes, and you're considered... The Russians consider Americans to be illiterates. <laughs> you know, and, and often in terms of the idea of culture. Fourth is the idea, the Russians now see themselves as the last defender of moral values in the world. There are areas of cooperation, mm-hmm. such as the Arctic and the idea of cyber warfare and, and the idea of pandemic and the idea of climate change, and yet there are areas of difference of opinion Mm-hmm. which need to be understood and which you have to resolve because between the United States and Russia, we still control 90% or more of the major nuclear weapons That's in the right. world. That's right, yep. And we're the only two nations that can wipe each other out at this moment. And, and the rest of the world, too. Yeah, the rest of the world, too, yep. yeah. Yep. Uh, so when is your next trip to Russia? As soon as two things happen. Um, one, when it's clear to go back. <clears throat> from COVID. Because, and from COVID. Yeah. And secondly, there's a the problem of getting in sometimes in terms of the West, you know, and getting in from the West. Secondly is the idea that that I, I've had a leg injury, and so I need to cure that up, mm-hmm. cure that. And basically, at that point, I mean, we go back. Yeah. And I'll go back. I've been across the ocean now 178 times. Wow. <laughs> and I want to make it to 200 at least before they put me on the funny farm. Okay. And so I'll go back as soon as I can because... I love the place. Yeah. There's, um, it's become modern. Moscow is one of the most modern cities in the world. It has the largest number of billionaires outside of, outside, well, Russia, besides China, is the, the largest number of billionaires. And, and Russia is extremely sophisticated, and yet it has an element uh, of not just sophistication, but an exotic nature where people are kind um, they like Americans. Mm-hmm. They don't like the American government often, yeah. but they like Americans. I think that's kind of true wherever you go in the world, yes. right? 
Uh, yeah, that's we're been my still... experience. Yeah, they love they, uh, people around the world like Americans, uh, American tourists, for instance, but they may disagree with American foreign yeah, policy. They, I try to explain to them that Minnesotans are really good. Iowans we have to question, <laughs> yeah. but Minnesotans are still safe. <laughs> Well, unfortunately, we've come to the end of our show uh, for today. Todd Lefko, thank you for joining us on National Security This Week. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here, John. So that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week, and we're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. We'll be talking about terrorism next week, so make sure you tune into KYMN Radio at 9 a.m. next Wednesday morning. Have a fantastic finish to your week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week. Real Radio, True Variety.